Good morning. I'm Mike Overstreet, a pastor at Element 3 Church. And today we're moving into week two of our new series, Campfire Stories, where we're sitting with the parables of Jesus. These short fictional stories that he uses throughout his ministry to teach some of the most important truths about himself, his mission, and the kingdom of God. And we're approaching these parables through the idea of those old campfire stories. You know the one those scary stories about maniacs and monsters that would be told around the campfire at the end of the night. Stories perfectly designed to draw you in, get past your defenses and shock you with a terrifying turn when you least expect it. Making them capable of getting stuck in your imagination for the rest of the night, leaving you afraid, sitting in your tent, asking yourself, is this story real? Is it about me? And we're focusing on these campfire stories because I believe that the parables of Jesus are his own version of campfire stories about the kingdom of God. That they aren't straightforward allegories or simple moral lessons or theological lessons like we're often taught, but rather stories that invite us into the upside down world and values of Jesus. Stories designed to draw us in, capture our imagination, get behind our defenses, and when we least expect it, hit us with the unexpected in a way that challenge us in spaces that we so often try to protect, our deepest layers of identity, values, and assumptions about our world, forcing us to wrestle and respond to them and what they reveal. And this week, I want to explore one of my favorite kinds of campfire stories, that is the ones about monsters and campers in the woods who slowly begin to realize that they aren't as alone as they once thought. That, in fact, they're being watched and stalked from the woods by the unknown. Stories with campers being picked off one by one, building to the shocking reveal of a horrifying, inhuman, terrifying monster. Stories that make us realize that we aren't afraid of the dark because we think it's empty. No, we're afraid of the dark because we're afraid it might not be empty. And for me, the perfect example of this kind of story is actually a movie called Alien, which in its own way is set up exactly like a campfire story. You see, I saw Alien way too young, thanks dad. And it scared me so bad that for weeks I went to bed wearing my blankie over my face because I was so afraid that an alien would lay eggs in me while I slept. If you don't know why I would be afraid of that, you should just see the movie. You'll get it pretty quick. Anyway, Alien is about a crew of people alone in deep space who discover that space isn't as empty as they believed. When an alien life form, this guy right here, the thing of nightmares for me, gets aboard their ship and begins hunting and picking them off one at a time. And this alien terrified me. By design, it's supposed to be as inhuman as it gets. It shares none of our physical qualities. It lacks clear motives in the movie other than just to kill. It's incapable of being communicated with or reasoned with or stopped. And I believe it captures perfectly why these monster stories are so effective. You see, they feed off of our human fear of things that are truly other than us. As human beings, we crave resemblance and similarity. 
They help us feel connected to something or someone. And in a way, they help us feel safe. Because what we tell ourselves is this, that if we can relate to something, then we can understand it. And if we can understand it, then maybe we can predict its behavior. But that impulse in us gets blown up when we encounter something truly alien or other than ourselves. Something that from our perspective has no shared characteristics or understandable motivations. No similarities that could help us predict its behavior. No commonalities that make it like us. Their unpredictability and unknown nature make them perfect buckets for our fears and dread and lack of control. And it's this idea of the other that's at the heart of our parable today. A parable, not about monsters, but rather our universal human tendency to turn human beings who from our perspective lack any common characteristics, behaviors, motivations with us or our group into an other in our own personal internal campfire stories. And how this thing in us to make the other, this desire so often leads us to treat them with fear, exclusion, and even hate over their perceived inhumanity. Something that Jesus addresses in a little parable called the Good Samaritan. A parable that's very familiar to many of us, which makes it one that we are in the biggest danger of misunderstanding. Because in context, it's provocative, it's deeply unsettling, and it speaks to the other in our lives better than any other story I've heard. But before we dive into this parable, I want to recap our four parable ground rules that we went over last week and that we're relying on to navigate these stories. Because like campfire stories, the parables have a design that helps us approach them and understand them if we hold on to it. And this is going to be a brief summary. If you want a more thorough explanation, just go check out our sermon from last week. So first rule, the parables are stories that create parallels between something understandable to Jesus' audience and Jesus' identity, mission, in the kingdom of God. It creates parables to help us grasp onto this huge reality. Second rule, their purpose isn't to give clear answers. It's to make us wrestle. They're designed to, to be open-ended and to be layered, to be returned to often, to find new questions, new implications. And thus, they never have just one interpretation or lesson. Third rule, the parables are universal and timeless in their truths, but their content is highly contextual to Jesus's first century Jewish audience who he wanted to understand them. Thus, we misunderstand them when we pull them out of their historical context. And fourth rule, the parables are meant to be provocative in a way that demands a response from their audience, either by rejecting or being changed by their challenge. If a parable doesn't provoke us, then we're reading it wrong. They aren't meant to be tame stories. Now, we begin the, the parable for today by picking up in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. And in this part of Luke, Jesus has been in conflict with Israel's religious leaders over a number of religious assumptions and belief that were common in his day, which sets the scene for what we find in verse 25. What we read is, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal 
life. So an expert of the law of God or the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament and God's commandments found within them, approaches Jesus seeking to test him. He essentially asks Jesus, what actions can I do or check off to inherit or earn eternal life with God? Now, you need to understand this is a backwards question. In Judaism, one doesn't follow the law to earn eternal life that is given by God's grace. No, they follow the law in response to God's grace, not to earn it, which he knows. He's a Bible expert. He's an expert in the law. You see, he's trying to undermine Jesus publicly with an obnoxious, impossible to answer question. And Jesus gets this. So he gets sly about it. He responds with his own question. What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? Hot potato, balls in your court, right? The expert replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So the expert quotes two verses from the law uh, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and essentially says, we respond to God's law by loving him with everything in return, and extending that same love towards our neighbors. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. A plus. The guy nailed it. But he can't leave it there. He wanted to justify himself or make himself look right in the eyes of the audience. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, you might not realize this, but this is a nefarious question when you really think about it. What he's really saying is, I get loving God and neighbor. But Jesus, surely there's a category of people that aren't our neighbors, that the term neighbor doesn't include everyone. Surely, Jesus, it's our fellow Israelites, not the non-Israelites, foreigners, immigrants around us. So Jesus, who isn't my neighbor in God's eyes? Who don't I have to love to follow the law? And Jesus responds with this parable. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So there's a man with no name, ethnicity, or moral description, just a human being. He's meant to be a stand-in for anyone in the audience. And he's attacked by robbers who take his possessions, dignity, and leave him half dead. And believe it or not, this is actually the relatable part of the story. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notoriously dangerous, and robberies were very common along it. So though horrifying, this isn't shocking. If you were in the audience, you might say, that's the road to Jericho for you. So Jesus is setting us up to identify with this man, to enter the story with this common, normal, relatable scenario, and to begin to wonder who will help this man. Or as we're drawn into the story and we identify with him, who will help me? He continues, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So, Two positive characters for Jesus' audience enters the scene. 
The priesthood and the Levites maintained and operated the temple in Jerusalem, the center of religious life and worship for the Jewish people. These are the good guys. You're supposed to think help has arrived, yet they pass by on the other side of the street. And it's often taught that they avoid the wounded man because under Jewish law, touching a dead body made someone ritually unclean and thus made them incapable of serving in the temple of God. So they must think he's dead and that's why they pass by because they don't want to become unclean. But this misses a few key points. First, it says they're returning from Jerusalem in the temple. So becoming unclean wouldn't be a problem. Second, they don't know he's dead, do they? Because they never check. And third, this wouldn't be a valid reason not to act either way. Scholar Amy Jill Levine summarizes it like this. If he was alive, their responsibility was to save a life they failed. Saving a life is so important in the Jewish law that it mandates that it override every other concern, even keeping the Sabbath one of the 10 commandments. Their responsibility, should the man have died, was to bury the corpse and they failed here as well. You see, caring for the dead was so important in Jewish culture that rabbinical tradition argues that a priest should contract uncleanness to care for a dead body if the body would go neglected otherwise. So maybe they're afraid of getting robbed or, or they don't feel like helping or they have somewhere to be. Whatever their motives, the point is that they failed to do what they should have done. And as an audience, you're surprised. Like I said, these are supposed to be the good guys. But you also have an expectation that's beginning to form about what's coming next. You see, there's a trope in Judaism called the rule of three. That is, the first two characters in parables are often used to set up a third. In this case, the Old Testament repeatedly connects three categories of people, the priesthood, the Levites, and Israelites. So if you're listening to the story and there's been a priest and a Levite, who's coming next? Well, you'd expect by the rule of three that an Israelite like you is about to come. And in the rule of three, if the first two characters fail, this was used to set up the third succeeding. So you're thinking, oh, I know where this is going. It may have started surprising, but here comes the Israelite to save the day. And with your defenses lulled, like Jesus was trying to do, here comes the shocking turn. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. A Samaritan enters and becomes the antithesis of all the other characters. The robbers steal and wound, he heals and provides. The priest and Levite distance themselves from the wounded man. He moves closer and then goes beyond what the law would have required of him. And we're like, oh, Jesus, you want us to help hurt people. That's so nice. 
But if that's all we get out of this, we are missing the provocation. No one today or in Jesus's time would have been provoked by being told to help hurting people. No, the provocation is in who helps. You see, Samaritans were hated by Jesus's Jewish audience. Israel was at one point united as a single nation. But if you read the Old Testament, there comes this moment where the northern tribes rebel and split from the southern ones in the city of Jerusalem, creating their own temple and priesthood in the process in their capital city, Samaria, a betrayal that made them bitter enemies. And it gets worse. See, near the end of the Old Testament, the empire of Assyria conquers the north and resettles Samaria with non-Israelites who intermarry with the Jewish population, which was a big no-no for Judaism, and blend Judaism with their own religious customs. Another huge no-no. So for Jesus's audience, Samaritans were despised as race traitors and corruptors of God's people and the Jewish identity. And this is who succeeds in Jesus's new rule of three. This is shocking. This isn't just someone you don't like. This isn't the parable of the good Karen from the office. No, this is the good terrorist or the good ISIS fighter, the greatest other his audience could have imagined, the greatest enemy they could have imagined. It's like saying the monster from Alien ends up catching you in the story. And what does he do? Well, he bandages your wounds and saves your life when he finds you. Is anyone feeling provoked? Anyone feeling uncomfortable by that? I mean, that was the point. And then Jesus turns back to the expert. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He won't even say the word Samaritan because he hates him so much. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus doesn't address his initial questions. Instead, he tears apart their underlying assumptions about people, God, and our world. He says eternal life isn't something earned through a checklist that you just find after you die. It's lived out now through mercy, love, and care for your neighbor in response to God's grace and who he is. And Jesus says, you will never encounter a human being who isn't your neighbor. Because in my kingdom, the category of neighbor includes everyone, even the Samaritan, even your most wicked enemy. And he closes, go and do the same or go and be like a Samaritan, leaving the teacher and us to respond, either rejecting the challenge or wrestling with it and being changed by it. And to ask, I believe, some incredibly provocative questions. First, I believe it asks us, what does it mean to be a neighbor? in Jesus's kingdom. You see, I relate to the priest and the Levite. I'm all about giving and compassionately caring for others until it conflicts with my fears and self-centeredness, until helping the other costs me or puts me in danger. Then I start thinking, do they really need my help? 
Isn't someone better equipped to help them? Can't they do it? Can't someone else help? Or God, you don't want two people in the ditch, do you? I probably just need to pass on by. I think Martin Luther King summarizes this best. He put it this way when preaching on this parable. The first question that the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the good Samaritan came and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Jesus challenges us to focus on the hurting person in the ditch, not on ourselves standing outside the ditch, selfishly afraid of what helping them might cost us. The neighbor sees a hurt person and only asks, what would God do if he saw a hurting person? And who would I be if I still choose to go a different way? This story teaches that I could offer all the sacrifices, care for God's temple, believe all the right things, and still miss the kingdom of God if I fail to help the wounded person in front of me. That Jesus is far more concerned with how I treat human beings than if I've got nice priestly clothes on. The good Samaritan looks for those in need, compassionately responds to their immediate crisis, and then goes beyond that. He stays in relationship with them by sacrificing his own wealth for their long-term care until they're fully healed. This isn't a box to check. This is compassion and care as a way of life. That's the neighbor in Jesus' eyes. And that should change how we see and help the least of these, forming relationships with them and helping them in the immediate crisis and in the long term with the sacrificing of ourselves. But only finding ourselves in the Good Samaritan lets, off, lets us off the hook. You see, this parable also asks, who is your Samaritan, your other? Like the expert, we all have an other. Just be honest people we just don't want to love, that we try to find loopholes in God's word that lets us treat them with contempt or exclusion or just by neglecting their care. Our other is part of our lives and we have to be willing to name them. Our other may be based on race, politics, Democrats or Republicans, anybody? It might be based on a belief or lifestyle difference, Muslims or LGBTQA communities. It might be based on something you see in the other person as just an obvious moral failure. And what Jesus says in this parable is get that other in your mind and that's the person you have to love and be willing to care for if you're going to be like me. Jesus knows we get a lot out of hating that other, opposing that other, that we don't want to stop. So he uses this story to slide past our defenses and deconstruct any delusion we might have that such a category like the other exists at all. He says, sorry, that other is actually a human being, period, full stop. And you are required in my kingdom to love and to seek their care. And finally, there's the beaten man. You see, I think most of us are cool with helping people, being the hero, but identifying with him 
asks a harder question, I think. It asks me, are you willing to be helped by the enemy? To imagine a world where the other is the one who can heal you. I think Jesus' audience would have balked at the very idea of a Samaritan giving them aid. They might have rather died than admit that they needed a Samaritan's help. And if you've ever needed help from a person or people you despise, you get why. It forces you to put a human face on the people you want to believe have no redeemable qualities to cry, don't help me because I don't want to see you as a human being just like me. And if you show me grace, if you show me love, if you take care of my wounds, then I'd have to change how I think about you and treat you from this day forth. And we just don't want that. Removing the concept of the other or the enemy requires something harder than just being willing to help them, to be the hero, to bind their wounds. No, it requires swallowing our pride and becoming willing to accept help from them in return. To see them as potentially being the very person or people who might reflect Jesus to us best in our brokenness and might be the very people that we need to save us. And that should humble us. That should make us willing to listen to the other, to realize that those people we hate may have something to teach us, that we may have it wrong, that they might be closer to God than our own biases let us imagine. That we might not see our own brokenness clearly, that we might be the ones in need of their healing. I mean, that's the power of this parable. That's where the rubber meets the road in this kingdom story. So, E3, I would just ask you, will we be willing to identify, to name who is the other in our lives? And will we choose compassion and mercy in how we care and love and seek to care and treat for them? Will we acknowledge the humanity and the potential to do good and the person that we want to call the enemy rather than choose hate. Will we care for our enemies because we've come to see that we're, they're actually our neighbors. And this idea of the enemy or the other doesn't even exist in the kingdom of God. I think that's what this parable asks me. And when I wrestle with that, see what I find is I begin to change that category of other begins to fall apart. I begin to see them in their full humanity. I begin to see them like me and I actually learn to love my neighbor as myself. And I'm never capable of seeing them or treating them the same way ever again. And in that, I become more like the Samaritan. I become more like the beaten man. I become someone who's capable of compassionately caring for any person in our world and for receiving their care in return. And y'all, I believe that that's good news. Amen.